Beautiful Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. We're recording at a different time from usual today, so Uh (laughs) this this feels funny, but it's nice to drink my morning tea with you. Yeah, I have my coffee. It's like first thing in the morning. It's not even that early. It's It's just that (laughs) my quarantine schedule has shifted back so much, both bedtime and wake-up time. And as I mentioned to you, my dog got me up at 3.30 this morning, so my brain's a little foggy, but I think coffee and book chat is the perfect way to wake up. I agree. Are you a night owl in general? Very much so. Are you? Yeah, me too. I've never been a morning person. No, even after six years of teaching mm -hmm. and having to wake up at 5.30, never got used to it. And I've done all of the things, like, you know, the list of, like, 10 things to help you become a morning person. It's It never works. It's just the way that I am wired. <laughs> I am the same way. And I think that's one thing I'm grateful for quarantine for. I've gotten to shift into this schedule that feels much more natural to me. Mm-hmm. Not maybe to the rest of the world, but I'm enjoying it. I completely agree. Well, I'm really eager to dive into our discussion of the Fellowship of the Ring today because I feel like I have so much to talk about and I'm so glad that I read this and get to discuss it with you because I don't think I would, I mean, I certainly would have, would not have picked this up on my own. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would have either, although I've been telling myself and other people that I'm planning to read it for a long time. In fact, I set it as a goal last summer to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, (laughs) but I need like a good reason to do something and here we have it and I'm, I'm glad I read it and glad we get to chat. So I know that both of us have people in our lives that we love dearly that love this book or this series. And so I am curious to hear a little bit about who's encouraged you over the years to read Tolkien. So the biggest influence for me there is definitely my sister-in-law. She loves The Lord of the Rings. She and I also both really love Harry Potter and have always loved bonding over that. And she gave me, either for my birthday or... Some some other reason, she gave me a beautiful edition of like the three books all together in one book to encourage me to read it. And I just never got around to it. And so I'm excited to be able to talk with her about it now. I also have two of my best friends at work are obsessed with Lord of the Rings and they always have these discussions about it that I'm like never... privy to or can't understand and so it was fun to like see different words and names pop up as I was reading and like oh I've I've heard that thrown around the office (laughs) 
That's funny. How about you? One of my best friends from college has the uh, Not All Who Wander Are Lost tattoo. Um, And she got that while she was in New Zealand studying abroad. And she did the hike where they filmed Lord of the Rings. But her love really originated with the books. And then my husband really loves the Lord of the Rings, particularly the film franchise, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I think, I mean, he read the books and really loved the series and loves reading fantasy, but he has wanted me to watch the movies with him for like a decade. (laughs) (laughs) And I keep resisting because I really have always thought that I would just be so bored and I don't sit well for three hours of a movie. Like, I really, I like the Marvel movies, but I struggle to watch those in one sitting without falling asleep. (laughs) So I think he'll be really happy to know that now I am excited to watch the movies with him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to text my friend too and let her know that I finished the book because I think that she'll have a lot of fun chatting with me about it. Yeah, that's so fun. I... I don't think I realized that you hadn't watched the movies either. I've definitely seen all of the movies, but only when they came out in the theater, I haven't rewatched them. So like the the characters I could see and the settings were pretty clear in my mind in like the big picture sense, mm-hmm. but I didn't remember what was going to happen. See, I wonder if that was helpful for you as you read, because there was a lot that I struggled with that I wondered as I was reading, maybe if I had seen the movie, it would be easier for me to get into this. I think it might have been more helpful if I'd watched them more recently. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like for a lot of this book, and we're going to get into this more deeply, but I really enjoyed reading it, but not a lot of it stuck in my brain. Like, mm-hmm. I I feel like it just kind of, I don't know, washed over me. And now, even though I didn't finish it that long ago, talking about details of it is going to be challenging for me. Well, there's a lot of detail to talk yes. about. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason. I don't know if anyone, unless they've read this several times, can talk about it with enough depth. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm even thinking the ones who could really talk about this would be C.S. Lewis and Tolkien himself. I would love to sit in on their conversations. But oh, my gosh. Aside from that, maybe Stephen Colbert could. Yeah. (laughs) Should be leading this discussion. (laughs) My friends, Megan and Mary Claire, they talk about like they're just throwing these names out in these places and I making references all the time. And I. They, I know they've read it multiple times, but I guess like because the Lord of the Rings fans I've interacted with are mostly super fans, mm-hmm. I had that expectation of like, oh, I'm going to learn all of the backstory of all of these things and it's really going to come alive for me in that way. And that wasn't my experience, at least on the first read of the first book. I... Very much agree and relate to that, and we will get into it, but let's back up a little bit and share that the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole is tells the entire story of the ring, but we, <laughs> we only read The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book, 
It was plenty of pages on its own. And in this first of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, we follow Frodo Baggins and his eight companions as they venture to Mount Doom in order to destroy the One Ring. A Dark Lord is in search of the One Ring, and if he finds it, he will have the power to conquer and basically enslave Middle-earth. Frodo and his friends must get to Mount Doom because this is the only place where the ring can be destroyed and peace can be ensured for all of Middle-earth, including themselves, the hobbits, the elves, the dwarves, all of these different mythological creatures. Along the way, they face challenges, strengthen their friendships, and realize their own strengths. I mean, it's so funny to me how many pages this is and how many details and diversions there are. And you really can sum up the story in In two sentences. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's true. And so I think when part of what I really enjoyed about reading this was learning a little bit more about Tolkien himself. And when you know about him and what his goal was for writing this, it makes sense. He was, he loves mythology and folklore, and he's interested in telling a simple story that's sort of a fable, but he's a linguist, and he loves the Arthurian legends, and so he is really interested in writing histories and creating languages, I think, more than just telling the story. That makes sense, and you did more research on Tolkien than I did, so I, I'm really interested to, to hear more about how your learning about him impacted your reading, but that totally makes sense and makes me feel like a little bit bad for skipping all of the songs when I was reading. (laughs) I skipped them too. (laughs) I just couldn't, like my brain could not. I, it was already enough to get through all of the exposition and explanation of histories and backgrounds and stuff. And by the time that I got to the songs, I was like, no, I want to know what happens next. Yeah, that's exactly how I was. Did you read the Narnia books growing up or any C.S. Lewis? I did, yeah. I don't think that I read all of them, but I definitely have vivid memories of reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, me too. I I loved those books, and I think that was an interesting – it's a really interesting parallel, and I'm sure there are many, many courses devoted to reading Lewis and Tolkien – in parallel and comparing them but I did think it was really interesting how kind of simple of an allegory Lewis's books are and they're for children and this book I was looking for allegory everywhere and I think obviously it's it's there and he is telling this moral story but it's just so much more complicated and hard to pin down exactly what equals what in his world mm-hmm I pulled a couple of quotes from his letters, which I, I didn't read all of his all of Tolkien's letters, but you did. I did. <laughs> but you're no. going to, right? <laughs> uh, no, but <laughs> but I did find a couple of quotes elsewhere in some articles that I I really liked and helped frame this for me. So, a couple of things he said that myth and fairy story must, as all art, reflect and contain in solution elements of moral and religious truth or error, but not explicit, not in known form of the primary real world. So he did want to include some 
allegory and moral lessons in The Lord of the Rings, but not in quite as explicit of a way as C.S. Lewis. And he also, I, something I find really interesting is, as I was reading, I thought that surely his experiences from being in the trenches in World War One, and then living through World War Two would have influenced this tale of brotherhood and loyalty and war. Mm-hmm. But he vehemently denied that it was that Lord of the Rings had anything to do with his war experience or that it was an allegory for World War Two, which I find so interesting. That is interesting. And I can much more easily believe that it's not a direct allegory than I can believe that he wasn't influenced by it. Sometimes I think we don't even know what we're influenced by. <laughs> so I, I agree, especially especially the positive elements of this book. Like you said, like the, the bravery, the loyalty, the brotherhood. Yeah, and I think maybe he was denying more of the World War II connections. I of see. Like, this is not about the Nazi regime, which I think you totally could read this and be like, well, the Dark Lord is Hitler. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. But... You know, it was also a different time where he likely was not investigating his grief and trauma and PTSD of losing all of his best friends in World War One. But surely that comes out in the friendships in this book and the, the sort of little band of brothers that they have. And I just think of World War One. Tolkien didn't really want to go fight. He's a scholar. And yet he went and did his duty because he had to and suffered a lot of loss along the way and I just really saw that in this book and that's one of the things I really loved about it yeah I I agree with that should we jump into more about what we liked and what we didn't like yeah I feel like I've been talking a lot so I really want to hear what you like and didn't (laughs) like about Fellowship of the Ring so what really surprised me is I think I liked the things I thought were going to annoy me about the book And the things that I was hoping to fall in love with didn't hit me the way I thought. So I thought that the parts of this book I was going to love were going to be the world building and the characters. And like I mentioned, I really enjoyed reading it. And so in that sense, the world building did work for me. I loved, I actually really liked the first half and being on this kind of slower paced journey with these with the characters and watching them explore their world outside of the Shire for the first time. But I wasn't really curious about the world. I didn't really care that much about like the lore and the different mythological figures and how they related to each other. I don't, I'm not sure why that just didn't really hit me. And then the characters I I know these are beloved characters, and so I was expecting to love them. There were, of course, characters that I liked and enjoyed, but I did not fall in love with really any of the characters. Maybe it's just because this is the first book, and if I read more, I would love those things or fall in love with those characters. But what I did really enjoy about the book, I actually really liked kind of the moral aspects of it and the lessons it was trying to teach. And I was worried that was going to be too heavy handed and eye rolly for me. And I thought a lot of it was really beautiful. And normally I don't really care about the plot of a book as much as I care about the characters. But in this one, I really enjoyed the plot. 
I really was surprised by what worked for me and what didn't with this particular read. I was really curious about how your your status as a mythology girl <laughs> would come into this because it really is a mythological tale. And so I was I was curious if you had any sort of connections with that that nerdy side of you. Yeah, I thought I would have more. And I think perhaps because Tolkien is, first of all, so scholarly and so mm-hmm. deep into the folklore and mythology, and second of all, so inventive and really creating this completely new world that maybe it was just a little outside of my reach. Like they weren't familiar characters to me or familiar figures that I could really connect with, even though I know he is deriving them from like ancient folklore. Mm -hmm. I read a little bit about the difference between high and low fantasy while I was thinking about this, and I never really knew what those terms meant, but high fantasy is a book that takes place in a completely different world, whereas low fantasy takes place in, in our world but contains fantasy elements. And I think low fantasy is more my comfort mm-hmm. zone and where I can get really excited and nerdy and make those connections. So again, like I really I liked this book a lot more than I thought. I thought there were going to be some things that really annoyed me about it and nothing really annoyed me about it. I just wanted to and this is no fault of the book. I just wanted to connect more with the place and the characters. And I'm wondering if I read on, if I will. I had a really similar experience. Oh, great. I can't <laughs> wait to hear. <laughs> I really felt like digging my heels in about this one because I am just not much of a fantasy reader in general. I was looking, I mean, in order to come up with the pairings for this, I was scrolling through my tracking of my reading from the last few years and maybe there were like four books that could qualify as fantasy yeah. over the last few years of my reading life so it's not a genre that I typically reach for I I would say most readers like world building when an author can really make a world come alive for them but world inventing the way that Tolkien does, which, you know, world building and world inventing, like those are conflated terms in the fantasy world. But I think of them separately in my head because I don't really care about the invented world. Yeah. As long as I can sink into the setting and feel like I'm there, as long as I have characters to root for. So if this book were written from the perspective of the characters and say each chapter was like, this is Frodo's chapter, this is Sam's chapter, this is Legolas's chapter, just like Game of Thrones, basically. <laughs> yeah. I would have been so in. I, I would have been agree. so sucked in. I completely agree. I really felt like something like that would have helped me really connect with the characters and and the place to be able to see the world from their eyes. And... It really is mostly this omniscient but somewhat distant narrator. And it it feels more Mm -hmm. like being told a story after the fact. So, yeah. And and I I know some people love that style of storytelling. And it's very similar to like Beowulf and Arthurian legends and things like that. And so he's very much working in that genre. But yes, I would have preferred alternating POVs 
to get into those characters and into the place a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so something I really liked was seeing those threads of the Arthurian legends and Beowulf because I really loved reading Beowulf in classes and discussing Arthurian legends, and I, that's just an area of British history that I think is really fun to read about. And Tolkien was a Beowulf scholar. He translated it. That was like his thing. So it was fun to see those parallels. But as a, as a modern reader, I can appreciate those literary connections. I can appreciate this as a classic, but it's not something that I look for in my fantasy. This style is not the kind of fantasy that I can get into. I agree. And this is backtracking a little bit, but what sorts of fantasy have you loved? So one that I can remember loving fairly recently is A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. Oh, yeah. Which, it's a real world setting. It's London, but there are three different Londons. And so there is a lot of world inventing, world building going on with it, but it felt a little more grounded to me. It was also, there were some historical elements to it. So fantasy that I tend to really love is either written from first person point of view of the characters so that I can really be in the character's head and see the world from their eyes, or has some real world historical connections. So... I can see those direct parallels to the real world or just so that it's slightly more familiar so that I can really enjoy the story and characters without having to constantly try and picture everything in my head or absorb all of the history and lore of the place. I also, I mean, if I looked at the fantasy books that I've read over the last several years, they're mostly YA, Hmm. which I don't think is bad. I think YA fantasy is fantastic, but I also think that For me, someone who doesn't love high fantasy, that's like the accessible point for me for the genre. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Have you been contemplating what you like about your fantasy? I I have because when I was looking for pairings, I realized that I've read more fantasy than I had initially thought. Like a few books that I've really enjoyed recently are... Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. I also really love the Magicians trilogy by Lev Grossman. I also liked A Darker Shade of Magic. Mm -hmm. I think that often the fantasy I like is (laughs) maybe a little bit cynical and like commenting on the fantasy trope Mm -hmm. and wrestling against this idea of a chosen one. Or against the idea that there really is a clear division between good and evil. And Tolkien's fantasy is so earnest and so Mm -hmm. black and white. And he's still pushing against conventions too. Like Frodo is a very atypical fantasy character. At least when Mm -hmm. Tolkien was writing this, he's not Odysseus, right? He's, (laughs) He's humble and pure and gentle and all of that. So I'm not saying that that Tolkien doesn't also play with convention, but yeah, I think this book is more earnest than I tend to like my fantasy to be, maybe. But I enjoyed coming back to one of the originals and seeing like what all of these other authors that I have enjoyed really are commenting on. I mean, even details in this book, like 
there's basically like a whomping willow in the Fellowship mm-hmm. of the Rings or obviously here we are at novel pairings where we pair classics with contemporary <laughs> books. I loved making those connections while I was reading. I am really nodding my head along with a lot of what you said. And, you know, I've been comfortable with not reading fantasy so much, but there are some that I have really, really loved. So it makes me want to pick up the genre more. I just think, you know, high fantasy tends to be something that I avoid. And so, okay, I I feel like we've skirted around what we (laughs) didn't like about The Fellowship of the Ring. And I will be the first to admit that I really prefer having heroines to root for in my books. And there are two female characters in here, three maybe, and they're not characters, they're symbols. Yes. Yes. I, that's one of the reasons I haven't read this for so long. Mm -hmm. I've just like known there are no women in this book. So this book wasn't written for me. And not, like, in a good way it wasn't written for me. Right. Like, and so that was off-putting. Yeah, there's Galadriel. Mm-hmm. Who... Sure. I think so. Like, Galadriel, Galadriel. I didn't look up every pronunciation for these names oh because gosh. there's so many. We're going to get in so much trouble from <laughs> Lord of We're the Rings We're going to get fans. some emails. She does speak, but she is much more of a simple. And then there's Arwen who is beautiful and, like, gives Frodo, like, a piercing look at some point, but Mm -hmm. I don't think she speaks. And then there's Mrs. Sackville Baggins. Yeah. (laughs) What a name. It was probably, like, you know, the most fleshed-out female character and not in a positive way. She's very – she's greedy and she just can't wait to inherit Bilbo's estate. And I do, like, I I am pretty sure that Arwen plays a significant role in the later books. Like, I know that they'll be brought up again. And I will say, I, it's this thing with the gender binary that I, you know, I don't want to be hypocritical because I want, you know, I want to recommend a book to my husband, even if there aren't male characters in it, and have him enjoy it, right? So it's not that I can't enjoy those books, but... I I just love a heroine to root for. I know that that's what I like in my books. And it's that thing of, I know that a big part of why I have avoided this series is I think that I've convinced myself of the narrative that fantasy is a boy genre. Mm-hmm. And I really think I thought that growing up and that I internalized that and that I was just kind of like, well, fantasy is for those like nerdy boys who like dragons or something like it's not (laughs) it's not a place for me Mm -hmm. and I know there's a lot of really great conversation around that especially with um female or femme fantasy authors right now but I am sure that that has something to do with why I've avoided it and why it just didn't fully land for me yeah I I completely agree I I will say that the masculinity in the book was more complex and nuanced than mm-hmm. I had anticipated even though pretty much every character is male there are a lot of different types of masculinity represented in these characters like Sam for example has more quote unquote like stereotypically feminine traits i suppose he isn't that hardened 
masculine warrior, even though he can fight when he needs Mm -hmm. to. And so I was pleasantly surprised by that, even though I agree that not having any real heroine to root for and just being frustrated with an author who, like, you're inventing a whole world. Why couldn't you (laughs) just make some of these characters (laughs) women? Like, why not? (laughs) That was a barrier for me, for sure. But again, like the the masculinity wasn't as eye rolly to me as I expected it mm-hmm. to be. No, not at all. I was kind of bracing myself like maybe this is going to be a bro book and I'm just not going to like that. But I found the characters to be soft and warm. And I think that books that represent male friendship in this way are also really important in combating toxic masculinity and giving better gender representation in books and so I really I mean I just I thought Sam and Frodo's relationship is super sweet all of these characters had such a strong relationship with Gandalf and spoiler (laughs) they go through some grief at some point and they all weep and they cry and they sit in their grief together and they comfort each other and I found that so refreshing and sweet and it really endeared me to them at a point in the book where like you said we don't get to connect with them there's not a ton of dialogue we don't get a lot of asides and their thoughts we get some from Frodo but we don't get to really know what they're thinking we're just being told a story like a bedtime story or a fairy tale but those moments where they really suffered together and connected over their grief were when I felt like I'm endeared to these characters and I could spend more time with them. If not in books, then I would watch these movies. Yeah. Well, the characters themselves didn't connect with me. Just the the friendship did. Mm-hmm. I really, one of my favorite parts was when they were going to see Galadriel and the elves said that Gimli had to be blindfolded to walk through because he was a dwarf. And dwarfs can't see this magical elf forest. Mm -hmm. And Aragorn was like, well, then we all will be blindfolded. Because it's unfair for Gimli (laughs) to be singled out. I was like, this is so sweet and special. Right? (laughs) I think that was my favorite part of the book. Yeah. I, there were parts that I thought were masterfully written, too. I thought that the um, bridge chapter. Yeah. Cause of doom. And they're like in the caverns and they're underground and there's that passage where they read on the wall from people who were stuck in there before Mm -hmm. and it says they are coming, we can't get out. And then on the next page, the characters echo that sentiment and Tolkien starts building this suspense and he writes this action chapter and I just thought that that was so masterfully written. Yeah, I I agree and I really like the way he sets a mood even when I couldn't Mm -hmm. visualize the place as much as I wanted to I could always feel the mood he was trying to create and a lot of the mood was like yearning and full Mm -hmm. of grief and nostalgia and loss and I thought that he really crafted that beautifully he did and I think those are probably the emotions that drove his life I mean thinking about post-world war one he lost all of his friends 
um, and the nostalgia for what was before the world really changed when he got home. Yeah, he, he might not have incorporated all of the details or a direct allegory to the wars in here, but it is really clear that his he put a lot of his soul into this book. Yeah, it, it one critique I read, and I can't remember where this is from, but we'll find it and put it in, in show notes, is, is that Tolkien's, you know, epic fantasy seems to be about a return to something better Hmm. rather than a creation of a new and better world for I mean that he wants something better for his characters but it's this Mm -hmm. return to something prior rather than creation of something new that the characters are trying to achieve which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting and really makes sense from like a modernist yeah literary perspective that like you said nostalgia for pre-war and all of that and I I did wonder once I read that if maybe that was part of what I was feeling too was not like these characters trying to like break the chains that bind them but but trying to return to like a simpler more ordered way of life mm-hmm. and so I did get that but I also felt that it was almost like the characters were really feeling that and yet they knew that they had to persist and move on for the greater good there was a also a part where you know they're at this round table discussing the power of these rings and they're kind of like we don't know what will happen if we destroy this ring things could go to shit like a lot could be bad for some of us and our lives could change, but we have to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so while there, I can see that nostalgia, I was more, I mean, I kind of felt like it was talking about creating this new world, having to go in a little bit blindly. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know that things have to change and we know we have to destroy some stuff in order to build it back up again. And we're going to go anyway, and that's the bravery. And so I, I, I kind of read it that way. And connected with that and felt like, man, this really speaks to me at this time. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I like that reading. And I agree that some of my favorite thematic elements were this idea of carrying on, doing your duty, rather than seeking comfort or safety. I really, of course, of course I had read this section before because it's a very famous section of the book, a very famous quote where Frodo says like he wishes he didn't have to live through these times and Gandalf says, yes, everyone who lives through these sorts of times wishes that, but it's not for us to choose. It's just for us to do the most we can with Mm -hmm. what we have and man, that really hit for right now. So I I agree. I, I... loved the elements like I said I thought I was gonna hate that kind of moral um like aphorism tucked in here and there but I really loved them and yeah I I liked that I wonder if I had read this at any other time if I would have connected to it the way that I did reading it in the middle of a global pandemic after months of many of us having to deal with things we obviously don't want to 
and having to find a way to carry on even when it kind of feels a little hopeless at times or is straining us in ways that we haven't been before and we're living through collective grief. I wonder if I would have connected with this book at any other time the way that I did now. I wondered the same thing. Yeah, I think this really was a nice read for right now. It was inspiring, but also an escape, which was pretty perfect for what I what I wanted and needed in the moment. Yeah, I I can't say that I would read it again. Like I know a lot of people find this series really comforting, and I did find a lot of comfort in it, but not in the way of I want to be with these characters all the time. This is the world I want to live in. Just like the way people reread Harry Potter or other books that they feel really connected to. I mean, that's Jane Austen for me, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But in this moment, I found it really to be a comforting classic. So do you think you're going to read the rest of the trilogy or watch the movies or how are... Is Lord of the Rings going to be part of your life in the future in any way? So here's my plan. I I know that my husband is really excited for me to finally watch his favorite movies of all time with him. I mean, these really are. They are his favorite movies of all time. If he could only pick one movie to watch for the rest of his life, he would pick whichever one of the Lord of the Rings series. And so I am planning on watching the movies with him. I said I can't sit for all three hours and he said we'll just do one disc at a time (laughs) (laughs) and I think I'll decide whether or not I want to continue reading after that maybe I will feel like after seeing everything that I could get into the next books easier and really picture the world better but the other thing about me is I'm terrible at finishing book series I read the first one and then I never move on because I have all these other books that I want to read (laughs) and all these other series that I want to start. And then I rarely ever finish the series. So chances are pretty good I won't read the rest of them, at least for a long time. But I will think about it and I'm definitely going to watch the films. What about you? I I do want to finish the trilogy. I've heard that this book is kind of the slowest and you know, setting the stage for what's to come. And so because I liked the plot and I like, I don't remember really what happened from the movies, I want to find out. But I feel the same way too. I'm not sure when I'm going to fit that in. Like reading this book was really slow for me. I could not speed Mm -hmm. read it. I had to read every word, even though I would skip the songs and stuff. (laughs) It took me a long time. And I'm not sure when I'm going to fit that in, but I do want to. I I feel that desire, so maybe I should start before I before that fades too much. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, we're while we're still in a pandemic and you can feel all of the feelings. I will say I told Curtis that we were reading The Fellowship of the Ring and he was like, "Why are you guys reading that one?" <laughs> because he said that the third one is the best. Okay. The, what is that one? The Return of the, the Return, King. Yeah. He said The Return of the King is his favorite okay. and that that one is the best. So maybe I'll just skip to that one. I don't know. We'll there see. There you go. Watch the movie and then skip <laughs> yeah. to that one. <laughs> I feel like we should just get into our pairings. Let's do it. We do want to hear from you listeners if you are big Lord of the Rings fans and if you have opinions on how these should be read, 
we want to hear them. We might not follow your instructions, but we still want to know what, what people who <laughs> love this series think is the best way to approach it. And I, I just think it's really fun that we both liked this more than we anticipated. We kind of picked this because we haven't yet talked about a book that we both hate. And we're like, oh, let's do <laughs> Fellowship yeah. of the Rings. We probably won't like it. And here we are. We really liked it. Yeah. I was really surprised. I'm glad that we picked it up when we did. Me too. All right, Chelsea, I am excited to hear your pairings. I know you got a little help, and so that makes me even more excited, really, to (laughs) to hear. So what did you pick for your first Fellowship of the Ring pairing? All right. Well, the first one that I picked is one of my favorite books that I've read this summer. And then the next two, I did get some help from my husband, the fantasy reader. I think, <laughs> because I, <laughs> yeah, I think it was wise to bring in an expert. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make sure that I was recommending fantasy. And I know that we might have some listeners who love Tolkien and love these books more than I do. So I wanted to sort of respect that and recommend some books that they might enjoy. So this first one, though, is my recommendation. It is one of my favorite books that I've read this summer. Might be one of my favorites of the entire year. I read it in three days. I loved so many things about it. It is The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. So I think that it ties really well with Lord of the Rings because it is highly allegorical. And I know we talked about how Tolkien was kind of, he wasn't doing direct allegory, but he has a lot of really important themes in the book. The treatment of evil feels kind of similar in both texts, and the heroes are unlikely chosen ones who have to grapple with their new roles and get along with each other. There's a group of people traveling through a world together in both books. So the city we became would be considered low fantasy. It is set and takes place in New York City, but New York City is also a character, or it is multiple characters. And so the setting and premise is completely different from Tolkien. And in fact, Jemison is actually responding to H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote horrible racist ideas and stories. So she's not really responding to Tolkien at all, but I do see some similarities here. So the premise of The City We Became is that cities are living things with their own personalities and cultures embodied by their citizens. That doesn't sound like a fantasy thing. It just sounds like a statement, but (laughs) she takes it the next step and really makes that come alive. So in this case, New York City is literally embodied by people who represent the boroughs. So there's a character who is the living embodiment of the Bronx. There's Brooklyn, there's Manhattan, etc. And they all need to come together and work to save their city from an evil force at work. And that evil force is the woman in white. And the I mean, the name really says it all. <laughs> Jemison is on the record seeing very clearly, and not spoiling anything, that this villain represents gentrification and colonization and whiteness. And so, for example, there's a scene when Manhattan, the character, is talking to a friend in the park, and they're both people of color, mixed race, and the woman in white, this evil villain, comes up and calls the cops on them. And as she's walking through the park, she's touching people and leaving these, like, white feathery marks on them and infecting the city. And it's, I mean... 
the world building, when we talk about world building, we don't just mean inventing, right? This is New York City, and Jemison is taking New York City and just making it literally come alive, which is, I mean, she's so imaginative and incredible. So there are tons of real-world high-stakes situations in this novel combined with her fantasy writing, and it just completely blew my mind. I mean, I... I feel like what I'm saying so far doesn't even do it justice, but I will link to our friend Bezzy at Being a Bookworm on Instagram. I'll link to her review because she says it better than I can. But I also recommend reading the book and reading interviews with N.K. Jemison before, during, or after reading to sort of enlighten the reading experience and illuminate some of the ideas she's writing about. She's a genius. I was kind of intimidated. I've always been intimidated by her other works like the fifth season, because I know that the world building is really intricate. And as we have talked about, we're not necessarily all about that, like detailed, detailed world building. But this one felt like the best place for me to start. And last thing here, The City We Became is a novel based on her short story, The City Born Great, which is in her collection, How Long Till Black Future Month. But it's also available online, so I'll link that short story. It's basically the prologue to the book, and the book just takes it and expands it from there. And I hope I'm selling this one hard because it's so good. I loved it. You are selling it hard. I'm like already <laughs> I, I own it. And so I was like looking around like to find exactly where it is because I'm gonna pull it and read it very soon. That sounds so good. Sarah, I am really excited to hear about your pairings for Lord of the Rings. I'm I'm eager to hear your fantasy recommendations. Well, my first one is one I think that you would actually like a lot because it's been compared to Outlander, which I know you enjoy, and it has a wonderful heroine to root for. So my first pairing is The Lost Queen by Senia Pike. And... I just adored this book so much. It was one of those great reading surprises. I was gifted a copy of this by Atria, the publisher, and didn't know what to expect. And I I can't even remember what drove me to pick it up a couple of years ago when it first came out because I hadn't heard anything about it and I must have just been in the mood for an escape and so I, I gave it a go and adored it. And this is a reimagining of Arthurian legends with a focus on this female character. And it's based on the Scottish version of the myth. So all of the names and places were unfamiliar to me, even though when I did the research, I learned, oh, that's the Scottish name for Arthur, the Scottish name for whomever. So... This book, it's the first in a series, and it's about Langorith, a young girl trying to figure out her place in the world. Her brother, her twin brother, who will later be known as Merlin, has been chosen as wisdom keeper for their their family or their clan. So he gets to learn all of this knowledge and history that's going to help him perform great miraculous works over the course of his life. And Langorith, as his twin, has many of the same gifts, but she's not chosen as this wisdom keeper. And and so that means that her life trajectory, she'll be expected to find a husband, 
and serve her family in that way by making an alliance between another powerful family. That's all I really want to say about this plot-wise because I just found it to be a really special journey to take as a reader. I loved picking this up, not knowing much about it, and I think that's the way to go. But it's a great coming-of-age story, and there's a lot of mysticism and magic and a really wonderful epic love story as well that I thought was totally swoon-worthy and really romantic and just gorgeous. So I like this as a pairing for The Fellowship of the Ring for a couple of reasons. One is that the book is really thematically similar to Fellowship. It's about the importance of solidarity and community as Langorith learns throughout the book who she can trust and, and who she can't and what she has to sacrifice in order to do her duty. And then I also really loved the world building in this. Just like like you said, to me, this type of world building, building on history on 6th century Scotland, that worked for me. I, I guess that makes this low fantasy too. I, I'm not really sure where that like historical fantasy realm fits in with Arthurian legends and those sorts of things. And like we talked about, I loved that Pike is taking a male-dominated fantasy story. I mean, I don't know how many Arthurian legends you've read, but the women in those books are all symbols and all symbols of terrible things. <laughs> and she takes that and turns it on its head and gives us this strong but soft and very feminine heroine to root for. And I just absolutely loved it. So that's The Lost Queen by Senia Pike. I really love that recommendation. This is one that I picked up and set down and I think it was a matter of just like wrong time for me to read it because it totally does sound like a book that I would love and I think I might have to give it another shot. Yeah, I also think, so the second book is out and I started it but put it aside because I was also reading the Fellowship of the Ring, and I was like, this is too much fantasy yeah. for me in one go. As I was reading, I it <laughs> I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I could like hear the audiobook narrator in my head, and it made me hmm. think that I probably listened to the first one on audio, at least in part, because I could hear the character, the name being pronounced in the Scottish accent and all of that. So I had some sort of memory of that. So I I recommend this one on audio for the accents and the pronunciation and allowing you to be kind of swept away. Yeah, and and of course good reminder there that we still have that Libro FM credit for listeners two for one audiobooks and that's always in our show notes if you're looking to pick up The Lost Queen or anything else on audio. Maybe that is how I'll try that one then. Yeah, I think maybe it's worth a, a second shot, but if it's not for you, it's not for you, and that's that's okay. What is your second pairing? All right, this one is recommended by my husband, Curtis, and it is one of his favorite fantasy series of all time. And this is Theft of Swords by Michael J. Sullivan, and it is part of the Ryria Revelations series. So Curtis told me, because <laughs> I haven't read this one, that... <laughs> 
Hadrian and Royce, the main characters of Theft of Swords, are a lot like Legolas, Legolas, oh gosh, we're going to get so much crap, (laughs) and Gimli, who are this unlikely duo brought together by circumstance, and there's a lot of smartassery back and forth with each other, and they sort of give each other crap, so he thought that anyone who likes that relationship from Lord of the Rings would probably enjoy Hadrian and Royce. So here's the premise of this one. There's no ancient evil to defeat or an orphan destined for greatness, just unlikely heroes and classic adventure. Royce Melbourne, a skilled thief, and his mercenary partner, Hadrian Blackwater, are two enterprising rogues who end up running for their lives when they're framed for the murder of the king. Trapped in a conspiracy that goes beyond the overthrow of a tiny kingdom, their only hope is unraveling an ancient mystery before it's too late. Another thing that I really like about this is Curtis said that Michael J. Sullivan is just a really nice guy. Like he interacts with his readers and fans and just seems to be, he seems like a good dad. Here's this little exchange I read on Goodreads that endeared me to him. I think you're going to love this. So a reader asked him if there's any graphic violence or sex in this series and he said, no, it doesn't. That's one of the things that sets it apart from many of the current books in fantasy, and my goal was to write a book that was aimed at adults but could be read by people of all ages, so there's no sex, graphic violence, or explicit language, which in itself is refreshing in fantasy. And then he said, originally I was writing this book for my then 13-year-old daughter to help her get into reading because she struggled due to dyslexia. So again, it's not a YA book, but it's something that can be enjoyed by a wide range of ages. Oh, How I cute love is that? that? That's so cute. I love that. Yeah. So he seems like a a decent, decent dude. So Theft of Swords by Michael J. Sullivan. That is one of Curtis's recommendations for us fantasy readers and not not yet fantasy readers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of lots of sex and violence. <laughs> <laughs> My next pairing is Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James. Has Curtis read this one? No, I think that it has been on his radar, but fantasy books are often really long. So I do find that Curtis will only read maybe a handful of them per year or even just like two because he reads a lot of the really long fantasy books. But this one, I I think that he's picked it up in the bookstore. Yeah, I mean, it has a great cover, so mm-hmm. it's very eye-catching. I would be very curious to hear what he thinks if he does read it. And I'm very curious, listeners, if any of you are big fantasy readers and have read this one already. I feel like this is a wonderful pairing for The Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm eager to maybe pick it up again, but I will completely admit that I made it about 200 pages into the like 600 pages of this book and put it aside. It wasn't working for me because, well, now I'm learning that that high fantasy world building is just hard for my brain to process. And that was very much what was happening here was the world is just so intricate and detailed and filled with myth and legend that I was struggling to to lose myself in it. But now that I have read The Fellowship of the Ring and learned about how my brain processes fantasy, I think I might give this one a go because it does seem to be, like I said, 
I enjoy my fantasy, which is pushing back against certain fantasy tropes. Marlon James is definitely doing that. So, okay. That was a long uh, prologue to this, but... (laughs) Black Leopard, Red Wolf is the first book in a planned trilogy by James that's going to be called the Dark Star Trilogy, and and it's the only one that's out so far. The main character is Tracker, and I love that this might be a subtle nod to Strider. I don't know if that's the case, but I certainly saw that connection there, which again is, is really fun to make those connections. He is a hunter who can basically track or hunt anything or anyone that goes missing. And he almost exclusively works alone, except for occasionally meeting up with Leopard, a character who's this enigmatic shapeshifter, sometimes man, sometimes animal. And the plot of the book centers around a boy who goes missing, kind of from this like orphanage, magical orphanage type place with this woman who who protects all of these children who are maybe deemed too powerful or too strange to be among the rest of the population. So the boy goes missing. We know he's very special, but we don't know why. And Tracker is asked to join a group of other people to find this boy, which he's very not into because he likes to work alone and do his own thing. So, of course, this band of searchers who comes together for a greater good, reminded me a lot of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's this misfit bunch of people who all have their own secrets, all have their own motivations, but they're trying to put that aside to succeed on this mission. And then the other major connection is just the level of research on history and mythology that both James and Tolkien bring to their stories. So, of course, Tolkien we discussed, uses a lot of old English lore and German mythology and other mythologies. And James is building his story on African mythology and folklore. So like I said, I I had a similar experience reading this where I like enjoyed the process and then found that my brain just wasn't retaining the information it needed to understand the book. But I'm going to give it another go at some point. The writing is fantastic. I've loved other books by Marlon James. I definitely also recommend, even if you think that you're not going to pick this one up, listening to Marlon James's podcast, um, Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. There are two episodes, one about high fantasy and one about myths and folklore that really reveal a lot about Marlon James' writing process, and they talk a lot about Tolkien in those. So, yeah, that is Black Leopard, Red Wolf. That does sound like it would interest Curtis. He loves nothing more than misfit characters banding together, and especially any character that's like a vigilante or has some sort of like darker backstory. And so that does sound like something he would enjoy. Oh, yes. All of that is here. And I kind of offhandedly mentioned this but I will reiterate there is a lot of sex and violence and violent sex in this book if you don't like that in your reading totally understandable this probably wouldn't be the one for you all right one more recommendation from Curtis here he loves The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss and I know that this is a big series for fantasy lovers 
And so I told Curtis that one of my favorite parts of Fellowship of the Ring, which I don't think we talked about, was Bilbo and his storytelling. Yeah. And his desire to pass that on to Frodo and have the story continue. And I really just loved that aspect of the book. So he recommended The Name of the Wind because Quoth is the main character and he is a singer-storyteller like Bilbo. And fun fact... This is one of Lin-Manuel Miranda's favorite books of all time, The Name of the Wind, which he wants to adapt into a TV series. And I imagine part of that is that he really connects with a main character who is a songwriter and storyteller. <laughs> but I haven't seen any mo- any news about that moving forward. So I think that Quoth also becomes a wizard, which is very Gandalf-esque, although I don't think he's quite as lovable. Like, Gandalf is just lovable. But Quoth is a complex character. So this book is written as an autobiography, which I think I would probably like, since I think that that first-person point of view is an access point for me with fantasy. And it follows him on his journey from childhood in a troupe of actors to and players and performers to him being an orphan and having a criminal background, and then he learns magic, and then he's a fugitive, so there's a lot that happens in here. And like I said, it has a lot of Curtis's favorite things. He loves vigilantes or characters who are sort of morally questionable, but they're forced to be heroes. And I know that this is also a favorite of several of my fantasy-loving friends, too. Not that this matters, but it has an insanely good rating on Goodreads. It's like 4.53 or something like that. So maybe it's that good. Maybe fantasy fans just go hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely one that all of my fantasy-loving friends cite as one of their favorites. So I think that's a great pairing. All right, what is our final pairing, Sarah? Okay, so kind of different, but my final pairing is called The Dictionary of Imaginary Places, and it's a little collection, so it has multiple authors. Alberto Manguel, Gianni Guadalupe are the two authors, and then Graham Greenfield is the illustrator, and It's basically exactly what it sounds. It's a dictionary of imaginary places. So it's in alphabetical order. All of these descriptions, lush descriptions of fantasy worlds that authors have created. So of course, Middle Earth is in there. Of course, Narnia is in there. I'm sure many of the fantastical lands from Curtis's favorite books are, are in there. And there are maps and drawings and... It's written in a way where it's not giving you the details about the author and the books that created this fantasy world. It's describing the world to you as if it's a real place and a real encyclopedia and you get to learn about the customs and the geography and all of that. I was gifted this book as a kid and I was obsessed with it. I like loved learning about all of these fantasy worlds. And then when I made a cross-country move a while ago, probably like six years ago now, one of my boxes of media mail got lost along the way, and this book happened to be in that box. (laughs) So I, I don't have it anymore, but it has gone through some updates, I think, as of course more fantasy is being written. They add to it. 
So I might treat myself eventually to an updated edition of it. But I think this is a great resource for any like fantasy lovers to have because you can look up little facts about these fantasy worlds. It's, of course, a great gift for anyone who loves fantasy. The book itself is absolutely beautiful. Most people who love fantasy love like the maps in the books. And so you'll see a bunch of those here. It's just a really cool collection and might lead fantasy lovers to um, different worlds that they didn't know about, but also helps people like me who struggle with some of the details to like have a resource to learn a little bit more about the world that the book is creating. So that is the Dictionary of Imaginary Places. I love that. That sounds wonderful. I love books like that that are sort of coffee table books, but they have a literary tie-in, so you feel like you can curl up with it and flip through it and get a lot out of that experience. Me too. This has been so fun, talking about fantasy, talking about a book neither of us had read or experienced before, and we're not done giving you guys recommendations. (laughs) We have a couple picks of the week as well. So Chelsea, what's your pick of the week? I mentioned that for me, YA fantasy tends to be sort of a gateway into that world. And one series that I have to recommend is A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass. I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before. Yeah. And are you giggling because because you remember reading this one and your students reading it? Yes. I like I I know people love this series and I wanted to love it, but I just because my students recommended it to me, I like can't get over that ick factor <laughs> with this and I just I am glad everyone who loves this series has it, but like I just can't. It's pretty sexy. So that's why Sarah's blushing right now because she doesn't want to think about her students reading the sex scenes. But I'm fine with them reading it. I just didn't want them to recommend it to me. That makes me feel weird. But it's I think it's a good fantasy for people who don't love fantasy or just who do but want like a popcorn reading kind of experience. It's really page turning and juicy. There's romance to it and there's like court intrigue and I've had a lot of friends pick this up in quarantine when they need a binge reader, when they need something completely escapist or outside of their usual genre and so I've been seeing a lot of people pick this series up lately so I just wanted to give it another little hat tip and it is one of the fantasy books that I have read and enjoyed over the last few years. So the first one is A Court of Thorns and Roses. Yeah, I've seen that all over recently, too. It does seem to be like a very much a comfort read for many people and an escape, which is essential right now. I would say that it's maybe the twilight of this generation of teens or like this time. Yeah. It's the same kind of like compulsively readable and, you know, there's romance and there's all of these different elements to it that really pull a reader in and there's like almost a little bit of guilty pleasure to it, even (laughs) though I don't, I mean, I don't believe it's in classifying any books as feeling guilty about reading them, but there's just that element to it. It's like, you know, 
eating M&Ms or something. It's just juicy and you want to keep reading and it's a good binge read. But I, I would kind of compare it to Twilight in that way. It's probably better written, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the writing in this one is great, but def- but I do think, yeah, better than better than Twilight. And it is, it is fun. Even as I felt uncomfortable reading it, I couldn't <laughs> stop reading it. And like, again, I think everyone, even teens, should be reading this if they want to. Just, just don't recommend it to your teacher. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Sarah, what is your pick of the week? Okay, so my pick of the week is Game of Thrones. Either the show or the books. I've read, I think, three or four of the books. I think you've read a couple of the books, or maybe all of them as well. Just a couple. Just a couple. And... I loved the show, even though, of course, we could have a whole hour-long discussion about the way it ended. But I knew, watching Game of Thrones, of course, that George R.R. R. Martin was a huge J.R.R. R. Tolkien fan, and, <laughs> and but that he also had some complaints about The Lord of the Rings. And I don't have the quotes in front of me, but he said some great things like, you know, about how Tolkien's ideology was that if there was a good king, then the land would be peaceful and prosperous. And Martin is like, doesn't quite buy that. And he's like, I want to know what are that good king's tax policies? And what did he do about the orcs? Did he kill all of them? Like even the babies? How did he make that work? And so he was really interested in moral ambiguity, the complexity of ruling a diverse group of people and just those nitty gritty details of the court intrigue and politicking and power struggles and things like taxes and how do you feed people and and all of that so after you know reading this this book I don't think the Fellowship of the Ring quite gets into that view of Tolkien's yet. I imagine in later books we see more of that idea that, you know, a, a good leader means a good and healthy nation or good and healthy world. But I do like that idea that Game of Thrones is built on filling in more of these complexities and ambiguities and details that Martin felt like Middle Earth was missing. And so I'm sure anyone who was like going to watch or read Game of Thrones probably already has. But if you haven't, or if you are interested in returning to an escapist world during quarantine, I'm kind of debating a rewatch of at least maybe the first couple seasons of the series. So that could be fun and is definitely a good companion to Lord of the Rings. I like that recommendation. I really, of the three books that I read, I really enjoyed the books. Me too. And people really praise Martin for his world building, but Mm -hmm. like we talked about, it is so different when it's from the character's perspective and you get to know the characters so much more deeply. Yeah. That's why those books really worked for me. So I I did really enjoy those. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. Well, I will just put a little plug in here, if you don't mind, that if you want more fantasy recommendations from Curtis, he and I (laughs) talk about what we're reading on the He Read, She Read podcast, and he has lots of fantasy recommendations to share, and also he reads a ton of nonfiction, basically genres that I tend to avoid. He has them covered, so 
If you want more recommendations like that, head over to He Read, She Read, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Yes, you should include a link to the episode where he expresses his bitterness that you're reading <laughs> Lord of the Rings for our podcast and not your podcast with him. <laughs> I will. I think that was only like a couple episodes ago, so I can, I can find it and link it for sure. For more classic lit enthusiasm and other podcast news from Novel Pairings, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Novel Pairings Pod. And we would love to know if you have read The Fellowship of the Ring along with us or if you're inspired to pick it up after this episode. So feel free to send us a message or tag us in your posts on social media. And we would absolutely love it if you texted a bookish friend today with a link to the Novel Pairings podcast recommending that they listen to it and maybe you can start your own little bookish discussion that way. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance on this episode and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back next week with our summer wrap-up. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.